from the Society for Nautical Research in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast. The world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Welcome everybody to the Mariner's Mirror podcast and with the summer upon us it seems a fitting time to look at some naval history in the age of sail, simply for the fact that so many significant operations happened in the spring and summer months when the weather was good for naval war. If you missed it, do please check out our episode on the 350th anniversary of the Battle of Sol Bay, one of the largest battles ever fought at sea. Fought between the Dutch on one side and the combined, yes, the Allied, English and French on the other. A battle which was actually fought by huge fleets of ships, over a hundred more ships than were at Trafalgar in 1805. It's a fascinating episode. I do urge you to listen to it. Early June is also an important time because of the glorious 1st of June, one of the hardest fought battles of the Age of Sail. Fought between the English and the revolutionary French in 1794 at the height of the Reign of Terror, when the French were guillotining the aristocracy in Paris and painting their ships red for that spilt aristocratic blood. Now, that's certainly a story we can come back to in time. For now, though, I thought we would have a think about what people war in these extraordinary battles. And for that, I needed the excellent Dr Amy Miller, Curator of Decorative Arts and Material Culture at the Royal Museum's Greenwich. She's the author of The Globetrotter, Victorian Excursions in India, China and Japan. But more importantly for us, she's the author of the brilliantly titled Dressed to Kill, British Naval Uniform, Masculinity and Contemporary Fashions, 1748-1857, which is without doubt one of my favourite books. An extensive catalogue of uniforms from the collection of the National Maritime Museum is accompanied by a selection of patterns which examine the construction of the garments, as well as personal papers, diaries, fiction and other period artefacts, so that we can see these remarkable uniforms in their historical, social and economic contexts. And what we get out of that, of course, is the significance of male fashion and uniform in forging of a national, hierarchical and gendered identity in the 18th and 19th centuries. So not only do we get a greater understanding of the political and social changes that impacted not only what the Royal Navy wore, but also why they wore it. I've personally been interested in this topic for many years, since I came across an extraordinary portrait in the National Maritime Museum maybe 20 years ago now. It's still my favourite naval portrait. It's of Captain Richard Chadwick. He died around 1748, and the work's attributed to a chap called Thomas Hudson um, around 1744. Now, Chadwick was an officer of little professional note. He seems to have been unfortunate enough to be sent wherever the wars with France and Spain, and there were a lot of them, were the least interesting. But he left a lasting impression on history because at some stage in 1744 he commissioned a beautiful portrait of himself by a man known for his skill at painting silk. 
Chadwick is shown fashionably dressed in pale silks with a hat and waistcoat laced with gleaming silver and enormous oversized cuffs, very impractical for a sailor. They're hanging very low from his arm. So here is a man clearly fashion conscious, clearly wealthy. He's displaying his prestige and social status through his clothing. Significantly, however, nothing identifies this guy as a naval officer, apart from the fact that he's very obviously pointing to a naval ship in the background. It's an important image because at this stage no naval uniform existed for the Royal Navy. There was simply nothing that could identify anyone at a glance, either ashore or afloat, as an officer in the Royal Navy. Now, this was all addressed in 1746 by a petition of officers to the Admiralty. It was remedied just two years later when the first uniform pattern was issued. But not wanting to tread on Amy's toes, it's time that she took over the tale. I hope you enjoy listening to her as much as I enjoyed talking with her. Here is Amy. Amy, thank you very much for joining me today. Well, Sam, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, first of all, let's talk. I think we'll rewind things. We're going to talk about the history of clothing in general, because um, for a, a maritime podcast, people might not really think about why it's important. Why do you think the history of clothing is important? Well, it's a really good question. And the fact is, to be honest, I didn't come to maritime history from um, that, that normal route. I came from a decorative arts background when I started working at the Maritime Museum. And so I brought with me that history of clothing, which um, is so important because it really um, not only mirrors society and um, the way we think about ourselves, the way about the way that we want to present ourselves to the world at large. So there's a great deal of personal information in it. But what we wear and how we wear it is shaped so much by politics, by economics. Um, and in the 18th century, it's brilliant because there are loads of fashion trends that you can see where, for example, there's um, Britain is is. Um, competing with France and is in conflict with France for quite a bit of it. But at the same time, France leads in terms of fashion and people want that cutting edge fashion. And so you can see this really interesting duality within society that you're both cutting edge, but at the same time, you want to be patriotic. And so yeah. it's the subject of debate, if you like. So it is just so, so important on so many levels. <laughs> Looking at your your wonderful book, um, and I've always been struck by this also by portraits is just how personal uh, the um, historic costume is, just like it is today. And it's very easy to forget that personal link. But if you look at a pair of sailors' trousers from the early 1800s or something, mm. it really brings it to life that there was a human being who put them on every day and went around their business. And I, th I think the way that, uh, that um, historic clothing can bring you closer to the past is, is hugely important. Would you agree? Oh, it's so important. Well, I, clothing and kind of, um, sorry, I'm going to wax about decorative arts in general, because if you look at ceramics, you can see the fingers of the potter and you can put your hands in those. So there's an immediacy to it. And the same thing with clothing. Um, it tells you so much about the person's body. And, and it's so personal because it's worn exactly not right up against the body because people had, you know, it, hygiene and cleanliness were not as they are today. But um, 
it's cut, especially men's clothing, is cut to hide all sorts of things and enhance other things, depending on what the fashionable shape is. So, um, for example, at one stage, it's it's positively fashionable to have a pot belly and, and <laughs> waistcoats are cut that way. I know, I think men cried when that went out of fashion. I know I personally would have if I'd lost it. But, um, <laughs> Take me back to that place. I'd love exactly. it there. <laughs> exactly. So waistcoats in the first half of the 18th century are cut so that um, they, they give you a very round belly and then they flare out and and that's the fashion perversely enough and then it changes and by the 1770s you want to be very long and lean and muscular but um when you look at clothing and especially um as a former curator when you try and dress a mannequin you realize where you have to pad things and um where things are, say, tighter than they should be. And so you start to understand that person's body. And if they had any health issues, you can see that as well. If their shoulders weren't straight, it meant, you know, they've got a little curvature in their spine or their arms might be unusually long or their rib cage might be oversized, which means they've got all sorts of other things going on medically with them. So it's really, yeah. um, it, it gives you an insight into so much about the individual and the time. Yeah. So why is uniform so important and interesting? Actually, just even talking about um, clothing makes you realise your head kind of explodes when you start thinking about uniform because you've got everyone dressing the same or an approximation of the same. It's 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 clothing that's imposed by a society on people. It, it's so reflective of so many things. Um, what is it for you that that makes uniform so interesting as a topic? Well, uniform is fascinating because it is codified, right? So it is your rank and your status um, that are immediately encoded in your clothes. But to be honest, um, rank and status are immediately encoded in clothing anyway, because you can see if someone has, um, you know, the, the fabric, if it's the latest, if it's the way it's cut, how clean it is, how crisp your linens are, all of that shows your rank and status. But uniform goes one step further. And with the symbols on your buttons or the type of gold lace, which is what they called gold braid, um, around your cuffs and all of that tells you immediately what your status is. And if you know how to read it, what your rank is within that. But the thing that I love, um, so there's that aspect of it. But also uniform riffs off fashion so much. The two play off each other. So what is an idealized masculinity in society will be picked up in uniform um, it, in terms of cut, in terms of everything else. So you, you have a little bit of a personalization in it. But the other thing is, um, especially with naval uniform that I found so fascinating, because when I first started researching it, I didn't realize, I assumed, you know, that um, the Admiralty or the King wanted the Navy to have their uniform, right? Um, but it's not. The officers asked for it, so they wanted it. They wanted a uniform that would distinguish them, that would show that they were um, in service to the Crown, that they were equal to the Army or any other force. Because, um, of course, the Marines get a uniform in the 1660s or have a sort of uniform from the 1660s. Um, and I'm sure any Marine historians will kill me for that. So, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but they, they kind of do. Uh, anyway, And, of course, you know, the Army famously has its buff coats from um, the Civil Wars. And then that, that goes on. But... Um, and, so and I'm just going to jump in there. We're in a situation yeah. where the army's got a uniform, the marines have got a bit of a uniform, but the navy yeah. doesn't have a uniform. The navy, well, the army doesn't really get theirs until uh, the early 1750s. Um, that red coat, that iconic red coat. But they have a version because of the way that the army works. It's initially um, 
people who are different regiments that are raised by you know, the landowners or the, the magnates or whoever. That's how traditionally the army happens. Um, and so you have a regimental of some type that distinguishes you. So the army's always had something. But yeah, the Navy didn't have anything. Um, there were some ceremonial clothes that they wore. But, you know, to be honest, when you look at these, they're extremely expensive. So you're not going to wear them at sea. So really, um, the Navy just had their own clothes which if you're really wealthy, you can distinguish yourself that you're probably an officer. And if you're extremely poor, you can probably you know, distinguish yourself that you are one of the ratings. But in between, there's a vast um, set of people who have nothing to distinguish themselves. They're just wearing everyday fashion. Yeah. So along comes this uh, this uniform. And one thing that really strikes me and I think would strike everyone is is how magnificent these frock coats are. They're... <laughs> they're um, they're long and they're, they've got enormous cuffs. So why, why don't you describe what we're talking? About? <laughs> All right, so um, so they are <laughs> in absolute step with fashion from this period. Um, you've got these in the 1740s. The fashion was for um, what's called a frock, which um, well, there's two there's two types of coats, but the frock is the thing that. Britain gives to the world in terms of men's fashion. It's the iconic garment in the 18th century. And it's a full skirted coat um, that would come to, you know, just below your knees. And um, it's double breasted generally so that you can button it across the front because it comes from um, agricultural wear. It was, you know, country plain, basic country people's wear. And it gets picked up and adopted and adapted throughout the course of the 18th century. And one of the things that get added to it are these enormous cuffs called boot cuffs, which are very full, which hang down. And I think Fielding um, commented that they were a great place for um, thieves to hide silver and other things that they'd stolen because they're so big. Um, so you wanted this fashionable boot cuff. Um, but additionally, you also had this French style that isn't double-breasted. It's a, a formal coat. It's a bit of a tighter cut. And its skirts are both fuller and they tend to be reinforced so they really stick out from your body. Um, and, of course, caricatures, caricaturists rather have a field day with that and how they really just almost are perpendicular to you. <laughs> but um, that's, that's what you get in terms of extreme men's fashion. And, of course, when uniform comes in, you get these beautiful frock coats that are for undress, and then you get these formal French coats that are used for the dress uniform. Because, of course, dress and undress, which we see as military term, is actually just a fashion term for the period. Your dress was your court dress. It's things you wore for formal wear. And your undress was just what you wore every day. So if you look at fashion drawings, they'll delineate between undress and dress. <laughs> so here's the, here's the immediate question that strikes me yeah. when you look at an 18th century uh, an officer. Um, I don't think you could invent a more impractical piece of clothing to wear if you're on board a ship and at some point you might be required to fight. So what's going on there? I mean, the cuffs are fine. I'd keep sandwiches up the cuffs, but you don't want them if, you, if you've got to um, do any, any sword fighting and you don't want them if you've got to climb any rigging and you, you just don't want them full stop. I mean, it's, it's quite extraordinary what they, the, the, the solution to the problem they came up with. What's going on there? Um, so... <laughs> So, yeah, um, it is a bit of an issue, frankly, and they do complain about it, especially when clothing gets tighter. Um, there's one little midshipman who later becomes an admiral who complains about the fact that he had to climb 
rigging in really tight britches and split them um, and and um, you know could, had to stay aloft for two hours and the wind just came in and it was awful. What they tended to do um, is if you're on the ship kind of in day-to-day things, a lot of them would adopt um, sailors' trousers. So you get that. Uh, but obviously in terms of battle, no, you're in your uniform so people can see you. But you'd be in your, generally from what we can tell, you'd be in your undress because it's a practical, it is for all intents and purposes, practical clothing. It's the frock. It's a bit easier to move around in. Now, and the other issue with britches is while our little midshipman who who actually became Admiral by Martin complained about it, um, at the same time, if you look at mid 18th century britches, um, they're incredibly full in the seat so that you can move around and you can sit. So they might be tight on the legs, but they're quite full in the seat. So there is a lot of movement to them. And in fact, if you notice, you will never, ever see in any portrait whatsoever um, someone without their coat on. You'll never see their back because it's that coat with those lovely full skirts hides um, all these sort of sleights of hand with the tailor so that you can move and you can actually move around quite easily. So britches are a little more freeing than you would think um, in mid-century. Later on, less so. But And then, of course, um, sailor's trousers, like all clothing, become incredibly political as well. So you get that famous portrait of Cochrane wearing sailor's trousers because that's that's tying in with things like the sans-culottes and um, ideas of liberty and um, republicanism almost, if you like. So uh, clothing itself is... so There's so much going on with clothing in this period and it's so... Um, the politics are so inherent in it that it's um yeah there's it's it's if you if you make a clothing choice it's not just about your social status but it says all sorts about your politics as well i don't think i own a pair of political trousers which is a, obviously a gap a gap in my wardrobe amy and i i, I need to cor- i need to correct that um you mentioned the midshipman who became admiral by martin it should be worth mm. just dropping in here if anyone's interested in the 18th century navy um do read the Byron Martin papers. They're fantastic. They're, they're mm. um, one of my my favourite favourite records. He's a very characterful person. Um, so here's the other question about about uniform, and, and this might uh, ring a bell for anyone who's who's um, suffered the indignity of wearing school uniform, however distant in the past. Um, I've got two teenage kids, and they both wear school uniform, but they both do their utmost to personalise mm. it one way or another is there evidence of um of of people you know trying to make the uniform their own in in one way oh absolutely i mean and even from the beginning you know officers asked for uniform but the fact is you've got to pay for it yourself right and um it's not supplied by the navy and so it's expensive clothing is expensive in this period and so there are two things that happen one is that people don't want to invest in it So there's one account of them having a coat, the lieutenants in particular, having a coat below decks that was a dress coat that they could all pass around amongst themselves and use it when they needed to. Um, And the Earl of Sandwich saw this and had some very stiff words about it. But, um, But the other thing that happens then, so that's the one side of it. The other side is, of course... You can personalize it and you do splash out on it um, if you can. So there are officers who had velvet lined collars 
say that little bit of luxury that no one will see because it's quite a high collar at that point. Or um, they had, and Samuel Hood had the most, or Alexander Hood, sorry, Captain Alexander Hood had the most beautiful uniform. Um, it's beautifully tailored. And that's the other thing is the quality of tailoring that you can afford really personalizes it right away. But then he also mm. had little, um, in his little pockets, he had an extra pocket flap with a button added so that he doesn't get pickpocketed. Um, <laughs> but yeah, additionally, they will have like cutaways across the front. So they will follow fashion. Nelson, um, his Trafalgar uniform, that waistcoat is not regulation by any means. It's Marcella, not wool. And it does, and it's got no navel buttons on it with their fouled anchors. So he even had his own personalizations and things that were more comfortable for him. Um, so there's there's that aspect. But the way, the biggest way, that they would personalize it, and it's it's interesting, is by adding epaulets when epaulets weren't in regulation. Mm. And, um, yeah, <laughs> and so epaulets are, again, you know, I've talked about this French and British back and forth. Epaulets are French military fashion, and everyone picks them up. They think they're wonderful. Um, and so the army gets them, but the Navy doesn't. And so within that, not only do you have this French and British back and forth, but you have this army Navy back and forth constantly. And if your army gets something, the Navy wants it and vice versa. And so the army had epaulets and the Navy didn't. And people would then um, have their own epaulets added to their uniforms. And there's, there's a really wonderfully sniffy letter from Nelson when he was in the West Indies to um, Locker, who was one of his mentors, who was in Greenwich at the time. And, um, he says, oh, two captains have come to see me, Ball and Shepherd, and you don't know them. And I think them great coxcombs because they're wearing epaulets. So they've deigned to put on a Frenchman's uniform. And he says, I'm not mm. going to court their acquaintance while they're here. And then, of course, in 1795, when epaulets come in, he writes to his wife, Frances, and says, oh, well, yeah, I've chosen some really good gold ones with very long gold bullions. <laughs> really massive ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But, you know, so at the beginning, I mean, it, it shouldn't be forgotten that they are dressed like the enemy that's a kind of a it's a bit of a weird sentence isn't it it's a bit perverse isn't it <laughs> but i mean that's that's the thing and even their formal dress is um is french it's french inspired so their full dress uniforms are french um and in 1767 i think it's not stated anywhere but the sense that i get is in 67 they temporarily abolished the dress uniform um and of course, there there are you know issues with France at this time. And um, what they when they reinstate it and bring back the dress uniform, it's a frock. So they go from wearing um, French inspired court wear, in essence, using that as your template for your dress uniform, to the frock, which is you know uniquely English, you could say at this stage. So it's really interesting that there's a huge back and forth. Um, and I think they are aware of it because certainly the magazines at the time are saying, um, you know, all of you that wear French fashion, just remember by buying it, you're putting money in the pockets of France. You're financing the enemy. And, you know, don't buy French wines. Don't buy French fashion. You should, you should look elsewhere. And so it's quite interesting that the Navy then takes this particular uniform out of circulation for a bit. Mm. Let's talk about rank because it's not yes. <laughs> just enough to say, "Oh, I'm in, I'm in the navy." You need to say, "Well, actually, I'm a flag officer," or whatever it might be. So, mm. when did the kind of the visual signs of rank come in, and what were they? 
So that doesn't—that's uh, a really tricky one. It's—it's uh, it's both tricky and not. <laughs> the actual stripes and sets of stripes don't really come in um, until the 1790s, where you have the number of stripes for, um, you know, vice admiral, admiral, and so on. But um, the rank is already encoded in uniform um, with that element of fantastic embroidery on admiral's uniform um there are full dress from the 1748 the first patterns that are introduced uh the first uniform regulations are just absolutely gorgeous there are spangles um you've got a whole row down your your lapel that's um this beautifully they're almost like little cornucopias that then have um vines coming out of them with spangles on the end so if you saw this person there would be no doubt that um he's high ranking in the navy even if you didn't know exactly what he was whereas um you know captains just have uh two rolls rows of gold lace or gold braid and lieutenants have absolutely nothing um, they ah. don't, I know, <laughs> those poor lieutenants, they, they have a white boot cuff on their, on a blue uniform, which is great. But then their, their undress is just a blue frock. That's all it is. And one lieutenant gets really upset. He says, um, you know, oh, it's just, it's a blue frock with gold buttons. That's what everybody wears. So, you know, there's nothing to distinguish it. So it's, but, and that, that fouled anchor symbol that we always associate with the Navy, that's that symbol of the Admiralty, the anchor wrapped in a cable. That's not on buttons, really not until the 1770s. So um, mm. these first buttons on uniform are, they're either just plain, a plain domed button, which is what lieutenants get on their full dress. They get a Tudor rose stamped on their undress, but no one else really has anything uh, except for flag officers. And they have this little octagonal shape, but nothing, you wouldn't look at it and go, oh, that's the Navy. Um, mm. And so, so rank actually is gradually codified through uniform as the 18th century progresses. But it takes a while to bring in things like the stripes and the epaulets with the stars on them and all of that. That that starts to come in in the latter part of the century. So for ages, it's just this very simple system. What about uh, material? I've seen a portrait I've got in mind. I can't think of it is now. Captain someone or other who's got the most magnificent silver silk coat from the 1740s, 17. Oh. 17- does that does that ring a bell? Yes, yes, that's um the beautiful Captain Chadwick. I love, I love his portrait. Um yeah, he, and his is one of the issues, you know, why uniform comes in because if you look at that portrait, um he's wearing the most beautiful um in in that period that first half of the 18th century, there's a fashion for kind of drab drabish colors. Um and by that I mean they're colors that were like Mole's back, for example, is one of the names. It sounds like a pharaoh and ball color chart when you look at some of the names. <laughs> um, <laughs> it does. But, um, but he's wearing this um, kind of, we describe it as almost a taupe colored coat. And, and it is silk. I mean, it's a beautiful silk, you can see. Or certainly the artist has rendered it as a gorgeous silk. And then as a contrast, he's got this lovely canary yellow waistcoat on with silver lace um, edging it that is actually lace in the, the sense that we would think of it. And it's beautiful. And he's, he's fashionably dressed up to the date, gorgeous boot cuffs on it too, enormous boot cuffs. And, um, 
And ex- with the exception of the fact that he's, he's gesturing to a ship in the distance, there's nothing to say that he's in the Navy. And in fact, you'd have to look at the ship to see that it's a naval ship. He could be a merchant, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. and, and that's the thing, is there's nothing to say that he's in the Navy. Um, when uniforms introduced, um, the fabrics are, they're wool. And I always think that's really interesting because you've got this incredible embroidery in the full dress for admirals, but um, it's on wool. And so it's this really interesting hybrid of hybrid rather, sorry, of um, hard wearing uh, clothes paired with uh, this embroidery. So it's this this hybrid of court fashion with, you know, everyday clothing. Now, Mm. obviously, obviously, having seen the examples um, in the Maritime Museum's collection and worked with them, because you had to pay for it, you bought what you could, where you put your money, where you wanted it to really be brought out. So some of the uniforms are really super fine, gorgeous wool, Um, you know, quite a super fine merino that was big at the time. And others are really awful tailoring and really quite, quite, um, coarse wool so it's really where you wanted to spend the money and I'm thinking of a particular example there's a surgeon's uniform in the Maritime Museum collection that is the worst tailored thing I have ever seen in my life it's so bad <laughs> and it's really bad and the fabric is really coarse it's awful but he spent his money on his hat which is a really expensive French plush, kind of a velvet. So clearly um, he wasn't wearing his hat, he'd be holding it, as was the fashion. (laughs) And so that's the thing that is meant to be shown off more than anything else, is the hat compared to the uniform. So. We'll move on to hats in a minute. So the the wool you said was merino, which is you don't get merino from, um, from, from the UK, do you? No, no. And that's the thing um, that Merino is, is again, that's part of the, the politics and economics of clothing, really. So um, Merino is is a Spanish, it's a Spanish wool. And Spain, more than anyone else in this period, produced the best wool, the Spanish super fine. And if you read... Um, travel accounts, people will talk about going to Spain and going through the countryside and they'll, they'll mention seeing the sheep and they'll talk about how the sheep are encrusted in dirt and mud because that keeps all the oils inside and that's what makes the, the wool super fine, according to, to them. But um, certainly uh, it was, just as I mentioned with buying French things and people saying, oh, you're just financing your, you're sending all this money to France. The same thing with buying Spanish imports on this super fine wool. They're saying, oh, you're just, you're just financing another country. You should be spending your money mm. at home. And, um, especially, and especially when they're spending all that money on warships. Exactly. <laughs> so, so, exactly. So they're dressing, they look like the French. They're making clothes out of stuff made by As the Spanish. Spanish. Exactly. The mm. irony is, you know. Um, but the other thing is, you know, given, given Britain's um, history or England's history, more specifically, with wool, um, you know, you've got the wool pack in the House of Lords. You've got that, that was, you know, one of historically their great exports. Even with the East India Company voyages, they pitch up with wool to begin with. Um, but having said that, so so there's both this thing of um, 
a knowledge of where Britain has stood historically in wool production and how can you be buying Spanish super fine? That's, that's appalling. And the fact that you're financing Spain um, at the same time that you're, you know, capturing their warships and, and doing raids on Tenerife. So, um, so what happens is um, Joseph Banks and George III decide to start a series of experiments with Spanish sheep that were actually gift to George III. And um, there are a number of people who pick it up, including this um, physician and gentleman farmer outside Bath, a man named um, Caleb Harry, Harry Hillier. And he does experiments with some of the descendants of the Q sheep to try and develop a superfine, a British superfine that will rival that of Spain. Um, and it never, it never quite... Um, comes off in the way that it should. But there are attempts at this time and there are pamphlets being published saying, you know, do not buy Spanish Superfine and we're working on a British Superfine and that's what you should be buying. So, as you said, with fashion, or as I as I think mentioned at the beginning, with fashion, um, that's why it's so important because when you start to dig a little deeper with something like uniform that becomes so emblematic, um, at the same time, there are all these things behind it, all these contrasting and, and almost warring ideas that go into um, creating that image of the naval officer. What about colour? How do you make something... <laughs> well, two questions. Who decides what colour it is? Um, mm. And how do, you, how, do you, how do you make something blue? It's not that straightforward, is it? Oh, God. So colour, again, let's talk about politics and economics with colour. Well, let's talk about who chose first, because that's the easier yeah. one. Well, I'm um, actually, I'm, I'm, more, I'm almost more interested in, in, you've got to double it up. It's who chose the person who chose. <laughs> so who, who decides on the fashion? And then who, who decides that that person is going to decide on the fashion? Decide, I see what you mean. Um, God. Well, um, so in the first instance... Who chose is, um, oh God, the Navy, um, the officers of the Navy, who, um, it's such an 18th century story. I mean, they meet in a coffee house and they have regular meetings and decide that they really need this uniform. They need this uniform because they need to be distinguished. Um, they need to have the respect that's due to them. And so they send a petition uh, to the Admiralty. And they um, say that they, they put forward this idea that they say, we'd like a uniform of clothing and we'd like it for all these reasons. And um, if this is OK, we would like you, if you approve it, then we'd like to choose a set that we can wear at one of the court days for the king and he can select the one that looks best. And so they all start Anson picks his protégés and starts, um, they all start designing their clothes and they all write to each other about it and what are you going to wear and what do you think would look best? So it's really, they're, they're fascinating reading because they're all very concerned about clothes and what they think would look best and what colours would work. And Philip Somres, um, who died shortly after this in battle, is the one who's credited with the undress. And this all comes down to the fact that he's shown in a portrait that looks very similar to the undress. Um, but a lot of the colours that are kind of moving around are grey. Grey faced with red was a popular one. Blue faced with red is another one, because, of course, that's, that's the Windsor colours as well. 
And um, so there's a huge debate. Ultimately, it's blue faced with white. Now, there is a story. <laughs> there's always a story. There is a story that goes around um, that the blue faced with white was chosen because um, the Duke of Bedford was in the park and um, talking to other members, uh, talking to the king in particular, and um, his wife was out riding. And women's fashion at this time, a big component of it was the riding habit. And that comes in in the late 17th century. But it's really popular dress. It's taken directly from menswear. And the story goes that the king saw the Duchess of Bedford in a blue riding habit faced with white and was so entranced by it that he said, that's it. That's the uniform that the Navy will wear. Um, it's going to be blue faced with white. And this is the story that goes around. I mean, even the tailors like Gives and Hawks produce... Um, produce um, pamphlets in the late 19th century that say, oh, the Duchess wore blue and white. Um, but that's not, it's not the case, actually. Bedford wasn't even around at this time. He was stationed somewhere else. And um, the fact of the matter is, a few months before the decision is taken on what the Navy is going to wear, um, Parliament votes through that they will not be using French supplies of indigo anymore. They will be using um, supplies from Carolina and the West Indies. And so it's indigo, which can actually be, it's a root, it's ground up, it's processed into a cake. Um, it's really easy to move around. It's an incredibly strong dye. It's a reliable dye. It's not a terribly fugitive dye. And um, so for all these reasons, indigo blue is decided. Now, using white, um, everybody goes, oh, my God, that's mad. Why would you wear white? But the fact is you can really easily clean white in this period because all you do is apply a layer of pipe clay to it. And that's all they did. They just rubbed their lapels and their cuffs. And later when white breeches come in, they rub those with pipe clay and that keeps it looking white. It's kind of like using white shoe polish on canvas sneakers. It's the same sort of yeah. same sort of idea. It yeah. keeps it looking scuff free and white. And so that's that's what they do. But ultimately, you know, indigo becomes one of those. Um, it's a product with all sorts of issues attached to it, isn't it? Um, it it's a product made by um, enslaved people. Um, it's and yet that's what the British Navy wears. And to be honest, that's what everybody wears in this period is that indigo dyed blue, because it's so, um, it's so easy to get it in great quantities and it wears so very well. So, but that's that's ultimately none of this about the Duchess wearing her riding habit, sadly. No, but I know the, the the bottom line is you can't get indigo in Devon or Northumberland or wherever. You you know it is tied up with empire and it's tied up with slavery. Um, final question: What about hats? I'm a great oh. hat wearer. I always have been. I've, I have a large collection of hats, and you will rarely. See, I'm wearing a hat now. You will rarely see me without a hat. Um, I love their hats. I think they're fantastic, and um, I especially love the bonkersness of having a hat but not wearing it and just carrying it around. <laughs> well, how, how did that happen? Oh, the hat. The hat is, you know, your hat's quite fetching, by the way. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but um, the hat is... So in the 18th century, you had um, a little hat called a chapeau bras. And obviously, it's a French fashion yet again. And that wasn't made to be worn. That was just to be carried around. 
because um, because the other thing is, you know, you've got, especially in the first half of the century, you've got these incredible periwigs um, that really, you know, have quite a bit of height to them. It takes some time to dress them. Um, they're obviously dressed professionally separately and then brought into you and you put them on. So um, you don't really want to wear a hat and, you know, crush down your periwig. Um, so there's that that aspect of it for both men and women. You um, uh, So you've got your little chapeau bra that you carry. But then obviously you do um, practically wear one as well. And um, you get the tricorn coming in in really the end of the 17th century into the 18th century that that classic three-cornered shape is the thing that um, starts to be picked up by both men and women you know riding habit you've got to wear a tricorn with it and that is the standard fashion really through until the end of the century when you start to get um that bicorn shape coming in and again I think it's really interesting because if you look at men's fashion magazines, that bicorn um, comes in, it's called an opera hat initially. So it's coming from men's full, you know, men's formal wear. Um, and it comes right into the Navy and into the army. So that by the middle of the 19th century, men are wearing bicorns instead of the tricorns. But they are fabulous hats, I have to say. And because you'll have them with gold lace on them along the edges, that gold braid, that indicates your rank right away. Um, and the other thing that you'll get is um, what sort of twist you're allowed to have on it. So you have, um, um, oh God, it's fine strips of gold are kind of wound up almost like a little spring. And that comes down from the top of your tricorn in the front and attaches to a button. And that's a clear way to delineate rank because, of course, the lower your rank, um, the fewer numbers of little gold twists that you have coming down. Um, whereas um, I think it's lieutenants. Oh, if I can remember off the top of my head, I think lieutenants only get um, black ribbon. But then once you move up, you'll start to get one little round of gold twist and then that keeps going up. And, of course, the other thing that comes in um, at the end of the century is that top hat. And you see that in sailors, they wear that, but there's a shellacked and they'll quite often paint the coat of arms of their ship on it or the name of the ship. And you'll see it with um, lower ranks that gets brought into um, regulations as well. But the other thing that happens is that little twist that works so brilliantly on a tricorn because it's really coming just up over that brim that's pinned up on the side. Looks really bizarre on that top hat because you've got it pinned from the top coming down. <laughs> so, so you start to have kind of 18th and 19th century fashion colliding and looking really, really awkward. Um, and I think that's kind of the more interesting bit sometimes is when they haven't quite fully gone into one fashion period and they're still at the tail end of another. And so you start to get these very strange combinations and shapes as one kind of starts to morph into the next. And it looks a bit awkward. You have very awkward periods of fashion. Well, Amy, it's been fascinating talking to you. Um, there's so much more I want to do research about now um, to find out about this, this wonderful, <laughs> wonderful story of um, 
of fighting fashion. Thank you very much for talking to me today. Well, thank you so much, Sam. It's been wonderful. Many thanks indeed for listening. In particular, do please check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast's YouTube channel, TikTok and Instagram, where you will find some truly magnificent videos to go alongside all of these audio podcasts, not least the fantastic new films on the world's best ship models filmed with the very latest camera equipment. This podcast comes from both the Lloyd's Register Foundation and the Society for Nautical Research. So do please take the time to check out everything that both of those institutions have been up to. You can find the Lloyd's Register Foundation's History Centre and Archive at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk and the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk where you can join up to enjoy all of the numerous perks of membership including four copies of the print Mariner's Mirror Journal every year. Fantastic regular reading for you. Online access to over a century's worth of maritime history scholarship. You can get access to all of the past Mariner's Mirror articles online, online seminars, and you can even come to dinner on board HMS Victory after our annual general meeting. Who would want more than that? Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.